0: Welcome to Council Culture, the business of love podcast, brought to you by Byfield. Welcome back to Council Culture, the business of love podcast. Uh, I'm joined by uh, uh, Ben uh, today. Hello, Ben. How are you?
1: Not too bad, Meg. How are you?
0: I'm all right. It's, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, actually. Uh, so it's good to have you back. Um,
1: yeah, good to good to be here. I think probably really important to say that whatever we talk about on the podcast today, and clearly we've got three or four really good stories to 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 run through, they pretty much pale into insignificance in terms of what we've seen in the Middle East over over the weekend and and this week. So I think it's just really important that we say that before we start.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And uh, on that note, let's start off with kind of general politics in the in the country in the UK. Uh, I mean, obviously, was. Press confer- uh, not press conference, conference season for, for several parties here, the Lib Dems, uh, uh, the Conservatives and uh, Labour as well. Um, first of all, do you have any thoughts on, um, you know, what's been said throughout those conferences uh, and kind of, you know, where we're heading?
1: Well, I think your inadvertent slip is, is true. A lot, a lot of the party conference material, certainly in terms of um, – the the, the of heads of parties speeches are absolutely designed not necessarily for the audience or in front of them but for the for for, for the media. Uh, I think that's probably absolutely true of, of of Rishi. Certainly his speech, which I saw when I had a few days off last week, felt pretty choreographed, didn't it? No, nothing really that's been floated. Um, leaps out of you in terms of having an impact on the the, the legal profession no. Uh certainly if you were aligned whenever it was seven or eight years ago when uh you know Michael gove wanted to put a levy on uh profits uh, of uh, big city law firms to pay for certain changes in the criminal justice system nothing like that is it seems to be uh Mooted or, or or has a you know an immediate relevance for city law, but so you probably need to take a little step back and assess each of the well really the main two political parties and really understand that we probably are going to have a change of government uh, next year. It certainly feels like that, doesn't it? and big yeah. music around the Labour conference very much seems like they're preparing to 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 govern and I, my own view is 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 probably that they they are. Uh, and it certainly, it certainly feels like that. I mean, I'm old enough to remember 1997, and I don't think they're going to have anything, you know, as an emphatic victory as that. But certainly, you knew at that point that Labour were going to get in, and it kind of feels similar to that. So I'm taking a step back really this this week and had to think about people in the party, uh, and, and I guess we, you and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, one thing that the City law can take comfort from is that you've got at least three people, haven't you, in Keir Starmer himself. Um, also David Lammy and, um, what's her name? You know what I mean? Emily
0: Thornbury. Emily
1: yeah. Thornbury. I was going to call her Lady newt, which obviously <laughs> she, she, she is, which only a few people know, but they're barristers, right? Yeah. So at least you surmise that they are going to have good knowledge of, of, of the law. Legal process, but also have probably interacted quite a lot in their previous careers with city law firms. I know Lamy did. I think he was sent to India as a, deli- as, um, years ago to try and open up that market for, for, for law firms. So they're all going to be cognizant of the legal profession, uh, how it operates, the value it brings and of the law itself. And that's got to be a, a good thing, hasn't it? More broadly, I think Rachel Reeves also has a, good knowledge of law firms and and city law in particular. Uh, I remember a few years ago, she held and chaired a select committee hearing on uh, the gender pay gap uh, when it was a big issue within law firms and had at least one big law firm appearing in front of her and appeared at that point to, to understand uh, how law firms work. So I think that we can probably take comfort that there'll be a level of sophistication and understanding as to how the profession works. But what the policies will be compared to the Tories doesn't really feel a huge amount different than it perhaps did under Boris and uh, Corbyn, does it?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was saying to you, Rale, I do think it's two sides of the same coin at the moment. So, yeah, I'm not sure in terms of actual day-to-day policies that will affect us all. I don't know how that's going to turn out. note uh let's move on to the next story that was in legal cheek this week um this week was we had on tuesday uh, it was world mental health day and um legal cheek had a an interesting story in there stating that um there were a, a, there was a rise of, of about 25 percent of calls to a hotline for mental health um for for legal professionals in the past year which is quite concerning um, in a way, though I would say probably not surprising. I think for a long time now, the the mood across the industry has been that, you know, there are issues around work-life balance for a lot of people in the profession. And it's really difficult to kind of grapple with for both lawyers and and management teams that are kind of trained to navigate those issues um, for their people. So, I mean, what are your thoughts so far on on these types of issues, not necessarily the statistics that we've got here, but...
1: I think the legal... Having obviously worked in a very big law firm for, for, for many years... Certainly, it's true of that firm, and I can pretty sure of, of others that they do take mental health really, really seriously. Yeah, it's not just virtue signaling or you know paying lip service. Law, law firms are incredibly worried about mental health from their people, which is a great thing. Yeah. In, in and of itself, we 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 know that it's undeniable that the you know, particularly if you are an associate in a in a big US or city law firm, you're going to pull some hours. And that can be very, very taxing. I also think we're still feeling the aftershocks of COVID, aren't we? Uh, that you know the pandemic and, and the, how hard people worked during the pandemic yeah. and at home in an isolated way. I'm sure that's had uh, a real impact on, on on many people, and I have a huge sympathy there. Going to be a little bit controversial, and I, and I I'd say this: I think that, however. Well-meaning law firms are. There's a limit to what they can do until client behaviour changes. Yeah. You know, if your big client is, you know, uh, I'm not going to name names, but one of three or four huge global investment banks, and that environment, the the I know deal volumes are break down, but if that bank is, you know, pulling two or three big deals, your immediate work-life balance is not going to look very good, is it? If you're having conference calls with clients at eleven at night and they're all in the office, all our people, you know, all your people as a firm are working working at home, then the optics around that aren't necessarily great. And the pressure to be seen, to be in the office at you know, crazy hours will will increase. So until client behavior changes, regardless of what they are asking of their law firms in pitches and, and things like that, until the real nuts and bolts of client behaviour changes. I think is very difficult for firms to do too much more than they're currently doing. So sorry to be slightly pessimistic, but don't really see those numbers improving or changing until that happens. How that happens, I'm I'm not sure. bit above my pay grade, really.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think I I really do agree with you because I feel like, um, you know, you can have all the will in the world to kind of, put things forward for your people and all that stuff and for them to take them up. And, you know, I think that a lot of it is this is the type of job where you've got pressures that are dictated by external factors that you can't really change. And I think um, it's interesting because GCs go on and on about, you know, wanting their panel firms to have specific requirements around DNI and ESG and that includes mental health stuff, which is great because it's forcing the whole kind of industry to make these necessary changes. But at the same time, I do think there's a question for GCs here as to whether they're even implementing that themselves, uh, within their own teams and within their own company. And and whether actually those discussions, instead of you know expecting your your you know external lawyers to, to be there for you at 3 a.m. whether actually it would be more about having those open discussions with clients of being like, well actually don't bother us after, you know, 1130 or whatever it may be. Um, Like nothing is that urgent, (laughs) almost nothing, you know, you're going to have exceptions, but almost nothing is that urgent. So I don't know. I I do think, I think you're right. Um, And I do think there needs to be a push from the GCs to also kind of implement that kind of dialogue and, and to lower expectations from, from, from people <laughs> that they're hiring. Yeah, like, I'm going to
1: challenge you a little bit on that. Um, <laughs> and it's it's really around this, that if you are a US firm or a Magic Circle firm or working on global deals, yeah. if your clients or the center of gravity of a transaction is in a time zone that's five hours behind you, i.e. in New York or worse, in, in LA, if you're working on a Silicon Valley transaction, there's, a, say, a UK element to it. Yeah. Your main client, based in San Francisco or Palo Alto or wherever, is not going to be surfacing until 4 o'clock
0: in yeah, your yeah, time
1: yeah. so your hours of action on that could well be between 4 and, four, four and midnight uh, on an ongoing basis you know it's all very well saying to your, you know, your, 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 your associates yes yeah, switch off after 7 8 o'clock well, yeah. but you might not be able to I don't think anyone's really cracked out yet I don't know no. what the answer is but it's absolutely a thing
0: yeah no I agree I agree Next up, uh, we've got a – well, actually, it was uh, Susie uh, Ring's first story uh, around the legal industry uh, for the FT. Uh, I think it was – was it this week? Um, It might have been in the weekend, actually, um, where the story was about basically, you know, return to to the office for U.S. firms, which we've been going on and on about for for a while now. Uh, But it's good to see that she's back uh, covering the legal industry. So welcome back, Susie. And – yeah, I don't know if you had any thoughts you wanted to share actually on that, because it kind of relates to the point we were making.
1: Yeah, I suspect if we went quiet for a second, we would hear a collective groan from our, our listeners <laughs> that we're gonna go on about back to the office working from home again. Well, uh, good news is we're not, but we are gonna have a look at that story in the context of what it means from a broad business perspective. That, you know, it's interesting that this is Susie's first story and she's chosen to write about uh back to the office, U.S. US law firms asking staff to spend more time in the office. I actually think rather than kind of go through that yet again, let's just take a step back. And what that tells you is that the FT's readership, which frankly is basically big law clients, is really, really interested in this and what firms are doing. And you have to ask yourself, why is this particularly interested? And it might relate to that previous point that I that made, that they're looking at their own behavior and wanting law firms to, 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 to match that. And if the most interesting thing or the most newsworthy thing about the legal industry at the moment is who's in the office, who's not, what firms are asking, you know, what firms are asking their people to do, then that also tells you that it's really, really important that firms are getting this right. We know don't we, from experience that they're not, because yeah. we're asked all the time <laughs> by managing partners in firms, well, what are you know what are others doing? Can you can you kind of let us know? And what that does tell you, as sort of boring now, perhaps as it is, that this does remain arguably probably the number one issue for the legal sector in terms of its place in the broader business community.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we just wanted to mention that very quickly. got another story next which i really like actually uh jonathan ames wrote it this week and uh it was a story highlighting uh clifford chance's uh project with uh urban lawyers where basically they are offering uh legal advice to young musicians and um singers uh and rappers in london i don't know if that applies to other people in the country but at least in london uh on kind of contracts, uh, um, you know, label contracts and how that works. And I thought, personally, I really love this story. I think it's such a great initiative. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm a music fan and you hear too many times and you see too many times artists that grow and grow. And then when it's time for them to cut ties with their current label and move on, there are a lot of issues there that they didn't see coming when they first signed when they were 18 or 19. So it's, it's just really a really good initiative for those artists, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I thought it was a great story. <laughs>
1: I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great story, I and mean, I've got a few. I've got a few thoughts. One, I don't think it is limited to just 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 London. Uh, I, I was actually reading a, an interview with somebody that our older listeners will will know It's Holly Johnson uh, this morning, who was the lead singer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. They were obviously massive back in the 80s and uh, people will know them from their particularly their big hits i think relax and two tribes which i think might be two of the biggest selling singles ever and the numbers obviously back in the 80s were huge 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 massively oversaturating anything now with with streaming and stuff and he was saying yeah from a from a legal perspective they signed contracts they didn't really understand they didn't get any money uh, at all and they were touring around Europe and everything else and not seeing a kind of brass farming really so that tells you that this story is as old as the hills you know artists signing contracts or being diddled by lawyers record companies etc so on that basis i think what for chances is, is is doing is, is is really really good particularly now as we know that you know artists don't make much money from no. music they make it from uh Merch. Life, life merchandise yeah. and, and, and live performances yeah. and the price of concert tickets now is going up a huge amount in, in, in response to that but in terms of selling music how you make money is very very difficult so you know a huge feather in the cap i think to clifford chance for, for, for doing this uh i think i think i think it's quite cool i do think they might run into a, a couple of issues in terms of some of the content of of stuff that really want to get into that. Uh, That's for for other people to speculate on, but from a comms reputation perspective, then they've got to be a little bit careful about where the advice sort of ends up because a lot of these things have gone to court. But I don't really want to get into that because frankly, I don't really really understand it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then again, you know, to counter that point, Ben, I think it's a good point, but you know, If these law firms are representing sometimes you know fraudulent individuals or problematic companies, whatever the case may be, you know, then why not represent those guys too? Especially because this is not about the kind of kind of crime element. It's it's mostly about the kind of commercial element of actually producing your music and releasing it. So
1: I I tell you what though, just on (laughs) on on my point. So my son who's sixteen or seventeen really likes this music and I. I him and challenged him on it a few times to the point I've just made. And he makes a really good point. He says, you know, they're not advocating violence. Uh, what they're doing is commenting on it. They're seeing, you know, they're, 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 they're rapping about what they're seeing.
0: Yeah. They're not
1: necessarily condoning it. And the same, he didn't say this, but just taking a step back in the same way that Dickens lo- novels, you know, uh, Oliver Twist chronicle life in, you know, very, very deprived London, uh, Quite, quite an interesting point that actually, and he's probably not wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, lastly, uh, that was a fairly big story in the Times yesterday as well. Um, so, GSK settled uh, four lawsuits in one go, (laughs) for an undisclosed amount uh, in the US yesterday. Um, We just wanted to mention that because it's an interesting story from a litigation PR point of view. Uh, We were talking about it earlier. Um, I mean, go ahead and offer your thoughts first, Ben.
1: Yeah, we picked this out from a kind of a a geeky comms perspective. So those who are comms professionals from our, in our listeners, which I think is a, a, a significant proportion. This is kind of aimed at you. I don't pretend to have an intricate knowledge of GSK's business strategy, but what, what is Interesting to me is that they've, uh, the comms approach for doing all this in one hit, they may have had to for whatever reasons, but you know, from a communications and press coverage perspective, is it better to have something magnified by four, which this is in terms of settling four cases at once, or do it one by one by one and have perhaps four pieces of coverage on the whole thing? And they, probably have chosen to settle all four at once. Uh, just to give people a bit of context, uh, they've settled four further cases, so there were clearly some more, of the <laughs> claims that it's a heartburn drug caused cancer. Uh, and what they've done is they've settled four claims. And the really, really key thing here from a litigation perspective is that they haven't omitted any culpability. What they've said is that the, the, these pieces of litigation hanging over them were a hindrance to their ability to do business. Mm. And they felt it were even worth setting so that they could move on. But there was absolutely no admission of, of, guilt. And from a, from a comms perspective, I find, I find that quite interesting. And, uh, I actually think that GSK's argument stuck, stuck up here. And the fact that they have the full quote reflected in the Times piece is 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 good. And I'm just going to read this little bit here. So their statement is: the settlements reflect the company's desire to avoid the distraction related to protracted litigation. So from a business perspective, they've tried to they they've decided to write off uh, the situation and for you know for the sake of of of, of moving on. And they've gone on to state quite vigorously: they do not admit any liability in the settlements. And I think they've handled it pretty well.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I think in their position, I think I would have chosen a similar strategy, uh, to be honest, because to be fair, I mean, you know, quite often people just believe that, you know, whoever settles is automatically guilty when really quite often that's not the case at all. Uh, it might just be a case of let's just squash this and move on with our lives. We've got other things to do. So it's just really, the messaging here is really interesting. I'm surprised they provided such a long quote uh and that was kind of it's not even long it's just really to the point yeah. as to why they've done it um they wanted to be really clear on this and i'm like well fair enough because quite often you in settlements you just don't get any sense of why it happened and i think that's when it's dangerous for a lot of companies or individuals because then you get into speculation um
1: it's a massive comms charge isn't it that if you are you know a law firm or you're advising a company that settles that the act of settlement looks like an omission of guilt. Yeah, yeah. Really, really, I think the majority of people, if they're honest, their knee-jerk reaction to seeing a company settling anything is, are they guilty of it? And they just want to make it go away and and, and stuff. And I think GSK have understood that, and their statement, I think, is great.
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh, It really is. On that note, uh, that's the end of the episode for today. So thanks for joining me um and uh to the listeners you can find us on spotify google podcasts and apple podcasts and uh we'll be back next week for another episode thanks a lot
1: you've been listening to council culture the business of law podcast brought to you by byfield thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week We'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.